uh, the O. Kids, you're dismissed for Sunday school. I do that every week. I get up here and I start, like, I'm already thinking about what I want to say, and kids, don't think I forget about you. I don't forget about you. I just have a one-track mind. I'm so thankful that, that you guys are able to go downstairs and be with other kids enjoying the time you have together. Anyway, what, back to what I was saying before. It's fun to think about weddings, right? It's fun to think about the celebration that happens at the reception, the, the, the kind of joy that overflows when, when the, the bride and the bridegroom come together for their first dance, when the, the groom and his mother dance for that last time together be, uh, as, as he's launched into marriage, as the, the, the bride dances with her father, right? It's such a time of celebration and rejoicing. And, and to think that that's not just what is promised us now, but in the future to come, a, a more full experience of that joy overflowing. I mean, that's, that, that, should, that should encourage us, remind us that the things that are going on in this world are not for nothing, but they're leading and, and, and going somewhere. And before I get into my, uh, our time in the Word this morning, I, I just want to take a moment uh, and mention some new words that I haven't heard uh, words that are new to me or unfamiliar to me is with honors. I mean, that's pretty amazing for Courtney, right? To graduate with honors. I think I actually went into seminary under academic probation. So it's like the opposite end of that extreme. So, and then of course, Sophia. Sophia, congratulations. Sophia's with us now. Yeah. Sophia, do you want to come up here and talk? You look like you're really excited uh, to have the attention. That's a big, it's a big deal to, to reach these milestones. And so hopefully, uh, not just for graduating from high school or college, but as you think as you go on from one school to the next, uh, that, that it's a milestone we've reached. And for families, as you, uh, as you welcome a child into your life, as you, as you welcome a second child into your life, as you, as you marry one of your children off, as you, as you enter into retirement, these are all important milestones for us to look back on, to remember how God has been at work in our lives in the previous chapter and how he wants to work in our lives in that next chapter. And so uh, it, it is, it's wonderful to think about that final chapter when we will have that chance to dance on streets of gold with God, where there will be no more sickness, sadness, no more mourning. Uh, and it's, it's something we'll be looking at today in our passage this morning. So as we, as we wrap up our study of God's design for culture, as we, as we wrap up kind of the consideration of what's our role in God's culture and his design for creation, I'm excited because it's our chance to put a bow on the life that we've been thinking about, the, the life that we're called to live, that, that this world is not there for our own benefit, Right? We're not supposed to squeeze the, the life out of this world and the time God's given us like you might squeeze an orange to get orange juice, but we're, we're called to care for it and to steward it, to, to see fruit grow from this, the life that God has given us. See, by, by God's very nature, he creates. And, and, not, and not only that he creates, but the ones he created are his mini-creators, Right? He, we're the ones that, that God is called to, to create in the style and the fashion and the, the way that God has created us. Uh, the scriptures teach us that after God created mankind, he placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them a purpose. Right? He gave them the, the purpose of caring for and cultivating the creation that God had made, right? To, he, he, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to be stewards of the creation which God has made. See, a, a gardener doesn't get angry and shout at plants and tell them, you're not growing the fruits and vegetables you're supposed to be growing. That's not a very good gardener, right? A gardener gets their hands dirty. They, they, they pull out the weeds that are choking the plants that are growing there. They make sure that, the, the, that they're providing water on the plants. They're making sure the plants get sunlight. They're making sure they're growing in the right environment and that they've got all the things that they need to grow. I'm saying this not from personal experience because I've never been successful with a garden, but, oh no, I, I take that back. I grew pumpkins one year, or we, we grew pumpkins one year. But from what I understand about gardening, a gardener doesn't do their job by sitting back and just letting it happen. They've got to get their hands dirty. See, the purpose that God gave to Adam and Eve was to get their hands dirty, but it was never, never something that they looked at like we look at work today, right? 
our, our dis, uh, dislike of work is really the product of, uh, of sin, right? Of taking what God intended to be beautiful and joy-filled and wonderful and, and twisting it with, with how sin has, has just stolen that, that purpose from us in a meaningful way. Now, this purpose that God gave to Adam and Eve has been passed on to you and I. But do you ever sit there and say, what's the point? Right? Do you ever, do you ever feel that kind of hopelessness and say, what's the point? Right? When your car's covered in, in mud and pollen, but you know what? There's rain in the forecast. You could take it to the car wash, but what's the point? Right? The rain's going to get it. See, I remember a time in, in 2010 when I said, what's the point? We were living in Massachusetts at the time, and, and, and I think it was Hurricane Earl that was kind of blowing through, but, but potentially going to have a pretty big um, impact on the part of Massachusetts we were living in. So the governor had declared a state of emergency, which meant that no one was supposed to be on the road. No one was supposed to be driving to and from places. It was a Sunday morning, and since I was the associate pastor, I was sitting back waiting for the senior pastor to make the call and cancel church. I'm thinking, hey, pastor? The governor called it. He said, state of emergency, you're not supposed to be on the road. So I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to wait anymore. I'm going to call Pastor Larry. I'm going to ask him, hey, what's the deal? Are we going to have church or not? So, I, you know, I do. I call him and say, hey, you going to call this one? He's like, what are you talking about? Of course we're going to have church. So I'm like, that's the moment where I'm saying, well, what's the point? No one's going to show up. Right? We're, he and I are going to be standing there in, in church. We're going to be there with the, doing, going through all the, the things we need to do to, to get Sunday morning ready and all that, and, and no one's going to show up. So what's the point? What's the point of putting in all that effort and, and, and energy, right? Well, wouldn't you know it, there was someone that showed up. One couple showed up. There's Pastor Larry and I sitting in the sanctuary, and, and the, this couple walks in. And it just so happened to be the week that this couple needed to be there in the sanctuary. I'm sitting here complaining about what we're doing here, what's the point, what's going to happen, and in walks this couple. You see, the Griffiths were this wonderful couple. I love them. They were, they were uh, strong members of the town that we were living in. Their son was just a, a gentleman. He was in my youth group at the time. But that week, Neela had received the diagnosis of breast cancer. And, and she was determined to be in church that Sunday, to be with her church family, her faith family, because she needed help drawing near to the Lord to find comfort in a scary time. So we took the next hour and we spent time worshiping God together, praying, talking together. That moment became a very definitive moment in her own spiritual walk with Jesus. And here I am, I'm, I'm the one who's saying, what's the point? What's the point of putting in my own effort to get my hands dirty and to, to invest in something that doesn't, doesn't really seem to make sense to me? Sadly, when it comes to our culture, I think there's a number of us who look at the world around us and we say, what's the point, right? I mean, many of us from our faith perspective look at the world going in a different direction than what our faith teaches us to go, and we say, well, what's the point? They're not going to listen to us. They're just going to keep going down that road. They're, they're, just, they're just going down the road where our world has fallen apart. So what's the point? Why, why, do I need to, why do I need to give my time and energy to something that just is going downhill, right? Others of us may, may just be tired of swimming against the current of culture. We're tired of being the ones that, that are not the, 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 uh, the, the, the voice that's in majority. We're, we're tired of being the, the minority voice. We're tired of feeling like our world is, is monstrosizing our faith. And so, you know, we said, well, what's the point? I'm tired of being wrong in, my, in the world's eyes. So I'm just going to stop swimming. Just go ahead and float along with the culture at that point, right? We, we're saying, what's the point? But God's word it doesn't teach us to say, what's the point? God's word doesn't say, hey, give up. You know, I, I've got it all under control, so just go ahead and float along with the current. Go along. You're fine. Good. I've got this. You know, don't worry about what, what, what I'm asking you to do. Just go along with things. God's word doesn't teach us that. Instead, God's word teaches us to trust in the Lord. God's word teaches us to tend to his creation, to get our hands dirty as a gardener tends to the plants in their care. 
God's word teaches us to trust him with the outcome. So this morning, we're going to be in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. And and so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it. Open it to to the last book in your Bible, the second to last chapter of the Bible. And and we're going to focus in on those eight verses there. And and I hope we walk away with an understanding that there's there's a point to us being involved in the world around us. Let me read for us these first eight verses. Revelation, of course, is a book where John is being given a vision, and he's writing this vision down. He's recording it for us. John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water, of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. Father, these are some difficult words. There's some joy-filled words, but also difficult words. There is a future, a future you have designed. And Lord, we also know that you are a God who does not desire that any should perish. And so Lord, may we take these words very seriously today, understanding that they're words for each and every one of us and each and every one of the people we know in this world, past, present, and future. Lord, help us to see with clarity the direction of our ways and help us to choose your way above all else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God's promise for the future is that he's going to make all things new right? New heaven, new earth. And so naturally, we, we wonder at, at this point, uh, what's the point of putting, putting in the work to care for and to cultivate our culture if God's just going to swoop in and, and make it all new in the end, right? Like, what's the point of working hard now if God's already promised to, to swoop in and make things new when all's said and done? But when God concl- declares that he's made all things new, He's not necessarily saying that he means to throw the old heavens and the old earth out and just toss them in the dumpster and then, then pull a new package of, of a heavens and an earth out and open the package and set it on, on his, his mantelpiece. That's not necessarily what, what God is intending in giving John this vision. Now, admittedly, there, there are a number of, of good theologians who differ in, in how they see this passage. There are some very good theologians who believe that God will burn up the current heavens and earth, destroy it completely, and create a whole new heavens and earth, from, uh, as uh, we sometimes know from theology, ex nihilo, which is creating out of nothing. God's going to create a new heavens and an earth out of nothing again, right? There are some very good Christian, evangelical, Protestant believers who believe that's to be true. So what I'm about to say doesn't I, I hope doesn't flavor how we see our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who may not agree with me at least. But, but then I, I believe the other view is the view I feel most comfortable with as I study the scriptures, which is 
that, that God intends to redeem and restore this current creation so that it's new, like something might restore an old piece of furniture, right? So I, I personally believe that God is a God of restoring and redeeming the creation that he made to a quality that he always desired and intended it to be. When sin entered the world, this quality was destroyed. It was demolished. It was, it, it was just smeared, right? The quality of this earth as you and I know it is not at all how God intended it to be nor desired for us to be living in. God doesn't desire famine. God doesn't desire racial inequality and violence. God doesn't desire for us to treat one another in an inhumane way. God doesn't desire that, that some would go without while some go with more than they can handle. God desires the picture we're given in the Garden of Eden for his creation. But sin doesn't allow that, right? As mankind chose to go about their own way, to be their own gods, God said, fine, you're going to reject my plan. I'm going I'm to leave you to it then. No, no, that's not what God says. God says, you may choose your own way for a while, but I'm not going to leave it that way forever. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to restore it. Because I know that what I've created is far better than anything you could ask or imagine, anything you could dream of. So this creation, this, this renewal of creation as I see it, it really comes down to how we understand one word in the Greek here, in, Roman, uh, in Revelations chapter 21. So the crux of the matter comes down to how we understand John's words of, uh, use of the word new in the Greek. It's a Greek word that, uh, that, that called kainos. Kainos is this new, this type of new that refers to this unused, different quality of, of an object or a thing. Apple's known for coming out with new versions of iPhones every year, right? They, they, they make upgrades and changes and fix problems that have been with it. It's not the old iPhone. It's a new iPhone. It's still the iPhone, but it's a different quality that has these improvements built into it. In the Bible, when Jesus talks about the qualitative difference between the old and new lives of disciples, he uses wine to illustrate the point. Listen, in, in Luke 5, he, he says this, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now that, to me, sounds like it's saying like God's throwing out the heavens and the earth and pulling out a, a new uh, heaven and earth from the package. But I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying here. I think Jesus' point is, that, that you, you can't mix the old wine or the, the old wineskin and the new wine. The two lives just don't mesh. You have to live into the new creation that God has given you, right? See, wineskins were made of animal hide. So when, when they poured uh, new wine into new wineskins, as the wine fermented, it expanded and stretched that wineskin so that the wineskin could still hold the wine that was in it. But now if you take an old wineskin that's already been stretched and you add wine to it and fill it up, well, when that new wine goes to ferment and expand, that old wineskin couldn't handle it, and it bursts and explodes, right? But Jesus' point was for his followers to understand that they shouldn't see the, a life of following Jesus as something they could integrate into their old life, the, the way they've been living. It's not like they can have Jesus and their cake as well, Right? Or, no, how's that saying go? You can't have your cake and eat it too? They can't have, oh, that doesn't sound right. You don't want to eat Jesus. Oh, never mind. I'm going down the wrong path. I got to get back on path here. Jesus' point was saying the old life and the new life do not mesh. You cannot expect that they will mesh. You can't have your old wine skin and think that God's going to add your new wine to it. God is going to recreate you to, to, to renew you as a new wine skin and pour his new life, his blood and his body into you. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians, for we are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Now, I don't know about, know about you, but when I came to put my faith in Christ, when I said, God, I'm a sinner, and I, the only thing that will save me is your life flowing through me. When I said that, 
I didn't go poof, and all of a sudden I had a new body and a new mind. I mean, I did have a new mind, but spiritually speaking, this is not a physical renewal at this point. It's a spiritual renewal that happens in that moment. In a similar way, we're, we're new in that moment. This newness, this new quality of life has taken root in us. We still live in the same community. We still live with our same families, oftentimes working the same jobs, but we become forgiven and forgiving. We become recipients of grace, and we become givers of grace. We become loved and lovers of others. There's a different and new quality to our lives. Later on in Jesus' life, when he gives his disciples a new command to love one another, I kind of picture the disciples scratching their heads saying, "Uh, Jesus, did you maybe hit your head or something? Because that's not a new command. Way back in Leviticus, when, when God is giving the new law or the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gives this law to the people of Israel to say that they are to love their neighbor as themselves, to love one another. So what's new about this command that Jesus is giving them? What's, what's kainos about this command that Jesus is giving to his disciples? The command has a new quality in Jesus. In the, in the man who lived this example of sacrificial love, of being a servant unto death, the greatest expression of love, which is to, to, to have no greater love, which has one than this, that he lay down his life for his brother. We are a new creation. Doesn't mean that God throws us away and pulls a new Dan out of a package. It's a, he's talking about a new quality of, of, of life. The spiritual renewal in the depth of my soul, my, my very being has been made new. So back in Revelation 21, I don't believe that John necessarily means that the old heaven, the old earth was just thrown in some cosmic dumpster. Instead, I, I think John is witnessing the judgment of all creation in this moment. He's witnessing the, the judgment, renewal, and restoration of God's creation. If you read about the, the new heavens and the new earth in Second Peter, he uses language that in apocalyptic literature was oftentimes symbolic. He talks about the, 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 new, the old heavens and the old earth burning up, Right? Fire in apocalyptic literature is symbolic of judgment, of divine judgment. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually being burned. It means it's being placed under the judgment of God. I think John's talking about this scene of the final judgment, where God separates the sheep from the goats. Sheep. Sheep's already plural, isn't it? Yeah, yeah Thanks. So what's the point? What's the point of investing our time and energy in this world? What's the point of us caring about our culture, which seems to be going in the wrong direction? Why should we care that they keep choosing the wrong way? Why should we get involved? Why should we get our hands dirty? Why should we worry about any of that if the future is already determined? Are you ready? Well, no matter how bleak the future of this world appears... We need to remember it's not going in the trash. Day by day, it's heading toward a day when God will judge and redeem, restore and renew this broken world, and then completely transform it, give it a a brand new quality of being his new kingdom. Why else would we pray, your kingdom come? We're praying for this new quality of life from heaven down to earth, that God would transform this earth in the quality that he's always desired. And this creation will be qualitatively different from the the kingdom of this present world. Listen to the new quality that God describes in in, uh, Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 through 6. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Right? I mean, there, there are tears in our eyes every day. Right? And, and not just because of loss, but because of pain, because of what we witness in our loved ones' lives. There are tears that we struggle with every day in the quality of this present kingdom. 
But in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more tears. No more reason for tears, right? Death shall be no more. I mean, this past year and a half, death has been all over the headlines of our newspapers. It almost seems like if it's not physical death, it's the death to our hopes, our, our dreams, our, our way of thinking about life. Death is all over the place. The quality of this present world is defined by death. But the qualitative newness of the new heaven and the new earth, death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Remember when Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we are a new creation, the, old, uh, the, the new has come, the old has passed away. It's not a present reality. Verse 5, and he, he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Same word, they're true and true. Why is there repetition? Because it's an emphasis. This is true. There is no other truth that's important in this moment than this. Write these words down. He said to me, it is done. This is determined. This is not a possible future. This is written in stone. Nothing can change it. Determined future. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So what's the point? What's the point number one? Well, God's plan is to renew what's already been created. God's plan is to renew what's already been created. He's not going to take this hev- the, the new heavens and the, the new or the old heaven and the old earth and throw it in a cosmic dumpster and watch it burn. He's, his plan is to renew and recreate what's already been created back to what he'd always intended it to be, to make it qualitatively new and remove sin and its effects from what we know and love. And this leads us to point number, what's the point number two? If God is the one who will redeem and restore and renew this world, and not us, right? If, if our efforts to redeem and renew this world really won't result in a renewed world, and a qualitatively different world, and we're saying, what's the point? The point is that we should still care about what direction this world is headed in. See, what's the point number two is this. We were never responsible for the outcome of this world. We were only ever given responsibility to care for creation and help it be more fruitful. Right? In our minds, we're thinking, what's the point? Because we're not going to be able to achieve the outcome that we think it should be. You were never responsible for the outcome. God always was. This is his creation. The responsibility we've been given is to care for it, is to tend it is to make sure that it's fed and nourished. Not to condemn it and say, well, you're just wrong. But even in the midst of opposition, to come alongside it, to love it, to care for it, even if the creation itself can't see the good that God has for it, we can. And so we should come alongside it and help it, even if it doesn't know it needs the help it needs. God has always been the one who is responsible for the outcome. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 again with me. John says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. See, what John is seeing is the people of God. John is seeing the church gathered together as a perfected and eternal people coming down out of heaven with Jesus. More than once in Scripture, the relationship between Jesus and his church is, is, um, is talked about as the relationship between a bride and a groom, a bridegroom. The church being the bride and Jesus being the bridegroom. But most importantly, do you see what John says about the bride? She has been prepared for this day. 
She has been prepared for her groom. Now, I've never actually been a bride, so I can't say this from my own personal experience. Well, I can actually, because I married one. I married a bride, so I know, at least from her sharing with me, the things that she went through to get ready for our wedding day. Though I wasn't there in the morning when she was getting ready, I know that she had a whole team of people that were there to help her get ready for our wedding day. There were people to help her get into her dress. There were people that helped her do her makeup and fix up her hair. Man, was she gorgeous. Real quick side, side story. When we were getting married, I was super nervous. We, every, every groom is super nervous. But I'm standing there at the altar when, when the bride comes in, and as she, she kind of turns the corner and starts coming down the aisle. I kind of forget what I'm supposed to do at that point. Like, she'd been prepared so well. I, I, I leave the stage, and I start walking toward her, thinking, oh, now's the time I'm going to go take her hand, right? Luckily, my brother's behind me. He's my best man. He, he grabs me by the back of the collar and just pulls me back up on stage. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, not yet, not yet, right? There's a beauty in that moment, right? And the bride has been prepared to be beautiful. That this relationship, this moment of coming together between the bride and the bridegroom is this beautiful moment. And it doesn't just happen, right? We don't just roll out of bed and we're there. It takes preparation. And, and we are the ones who are the recipients of that preparation. We don't do the preparing. We receive the preparation, the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we trust in the Lord. See, God is, is at work doing that work of preparation in this space between the Garden of Eden and eternity. It's a time of preparation and renewal of his people. He's preparing us for eternity by giving us this responsibility of caring for our world and cultivating kingdom culture. Because what happens for a gardener when they care for the land, when they care for the plants, their heart grows for the things that they're investing their time and energy in. They have a greater value for it, appreciation for it. They become more like what they were always intended to be. Paul puts it like this in his letter to the Philippian church. He says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, the day of judgment, the day when Jesus returns, that that preparation will be done and the bride and the bridegroom will be brought together, and there will be a, a, a marriage, a marriage supper, a celebration. Now, we may not be responsible for the outcome of how this world looks and how prepared it is for Jesus' return, but one thing is true. A bride doesn't stop being a bride no matter how bleak the, the future looks. Her vow of commitment is in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. So, What's the point of caring for our world and our culture? It's our identity. It's who we are. As children of God, it's not just our purpose. It's, it's who we are. We're not a people who, who, who say praise God and thank him for this truth. We embody it. We live it out. And it's, it, it's, it's covering every page of the Bible that we're called to be cultivators of this culture, caring for the creation that God has made, no matter how bleak and bad that culture seems to be. As his bride, it will never not be our purpose to care for his creation. We never have the excuse of not caring for the world that God has planted us in. No amount of evil and wickedness that, that wins the day in this world gives us reason to throw our hands up in the air and say, well, we tried. We're going to walk away now. We don't have that excuse. Why? Because it's who we are, who we've been created to be. We're gardeners. Lastly, what's the point number three is very similar to what's the point number two. See, I... I believe our living on this side of eternity is a rehearsal. Or I'm sorry, th uh, our living on this side of heaven is a rehearsal for eternity. When we worship in the sanctuary today, we're practicing something we get to do for all eternity, is to be in a uh, this place uh, of attentiveness to the, the one who created us where there's no more sickness, sadness, or tears, just joy, pure joy to worship God as we walk throughout his creation, as we celebrate the relationships where there's no more anger and strife to divide us, 
We worship God in the goodness of who he is. See, I believe eternity with God will be something like a return to the garden. I I think it's going to be a return to the way things were before sin entered this world. If you look at the description of the New Jerusalem in the the rest of our chapter, which I'd encourage you to read, it, it shares similarities in the description of the New Jerusalem with the description of the Garden of Eden. They both have an important river that's central to its description, a a, a river which brings life to the land. They're both filled with with precious stones like gold and onyx. But probably most importantly, the, the, the thing they share in common is that they're both places where God dwells with and among his people. If you look down the pages, uh, the, the page of your Bible, you, you'd see that in verse 22, John doesn't see a temple in this new Jerusalem. In fact, he notes that he doesn't see a temple in the new Jerusalem. Why is this? It's because God's glory doesn't dwell in the temple anymore. God's glory dwells among his people in the city. In verse 3 of Revelation 21, John uses the Greek word skene for dwelling place. When he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Skene means to, to live with, to, to tabernacle with, or, or to tent with, right? In the history of Israel, God's presence went with his people. He, he, he meets with Moses in the, the tent of meeting. While they're traveling through the wilderness, God's presence went with them in the tabernacle. Some theologians, by the way, they they see the design of the tabernacle as being this design of, of eternity with God, the design of how we would understand heaven. Not only does God tabernacle with his people in the wilderness, but when they settle in Jerusalem, Solomon builds the temple where God's glory dwells where God is with his people. So if they want to be near God, they come to the temple. They offer their sacrifices. They meet with God in worship. As God walked in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, I believe he will walk the streets of the new Jerusalem with his people. He'll dance on the streets with his people. So what's the point number three? If we came from the garden and we're heading to a new, a renewed garden, then between these two gardens is a rehearsal for eternity. It's learning to live with God like we've always been meant to live. Yeah, we deal with sin on this side of heaven, but that shouldn't stop us from experiencing a with God life. It's not a waste of our time. It's not a rest stop on our way to eternity. We're not just hanging out here in between the two places that we're trying to be. It's a time in which we rehearse walking with God by faith, enjoying his beauty and his wisdom, giving thanks for his many blessings, glorifying him and worshiping him with the work of our hands, not just with the voices we raise, but the the ways we invest our time and energy in in creating a culture that reflects God, that, that, that reflects his heart, his care and his concern. The prophet Isaiah describes this life in eternity with, with this prophecy he was given in Isaiah 65. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Make no mistake, this is a a picture of the new Jerusalem. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree, they shall be the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Eternity is a time where we will build and cultivate again, 
We will enjoy the work of our hands more than we ever have because it will be the way we were always meant to be. The culture, the world, the, the creation will ever be the same. Our purpose is not going to change, right? We're still going to be cultivating and building in eternity. Our purpose isn't changing. So why not, why not rehearse? Why not rehearse for our time in eternity? So what's the point of caring for our world and our culture? Church, it's part of our calling. It's who we are. We're not meant to be a people who have the right programs and, 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 and look like our lives are becoming more ethical. That we're, not, we're not meant to be a people who stand out as being moral. We're meant to be a people who reflect the glory of God and whose lives don't... We, we're not just meant to be a mirror that sits on the shelf. We reflect the glory of God as we get out into the world. As we get out of this building, as we get our hands dirty in other people's lives and, and in the world we're living in. We don't make disciples by staying inside all day. That's not how it's going to be, especially not in our day. The tools of discipleship that worked for us a generation ago do not work to make disciples in the generation to come. Trust me. We need to think about how God has called us to be gardeners. Gardeners realize their job doesn't happen overnight. It takes work and time and effort and investment. We make disciples by getting out into our world and being a kingdom influence. I want to end with a story of a man by the name of Danny Croce. Danny was in prison for driving drunk and high one night. And he doesn't remember much of the night, but he does remember running through a barricade and, and hitting a person. Ended up being a police officer who was his friend. This police officer died later, and, and Danny was imprisoned as a result of that. And he, he struggled. See, Danny's prison wasn't just Plymouth County Correctional Facility. His prison was his mind and his heart. Every night when he lay down, he had a hard time sleeping. He kept replaying that night in his mind, the, the accident, the scene, over and over and over. He was imprisoned by his guilt and his shame. The, there was a group that was starting up at the prison. It was a, a group for uh, inmates that were in there for vehicular manslaughter. And so someone invited him to the group, and, and he decided to go. And uh, at this group, he was introduced to prayer. Someone said, well, have you thought about praying? They handed him a New Testament, and, and that was that. And he went back to his cell, and, and Danny kind of thought about that and, and started reading the New Testament started thinking about his situation day by day, kept kind of playing over. Day by day, he was still imprisoned in his mind and his heart. But see, the more that Danny read about Jesus, the more and more he became eager to be forgiven. He realized that's what he longed for, is to truly be forgiven. Not just told you're forgiven, but to be forgiven in such a way that you feel it in the depth of your being. You could, you could even forgive yourself, right? One night in the quiet of his prison cell, Danny prayed, and he asked God for forgiveness. Not only did he ask God for forgiveness, but he surrendered the control of his life to Jesus. He, he had seen what he could do with his life. Now he wanted to see what Jesus could do with his life. And so he does. He, he surrenders his life to Jesus. Now, after that, he notices some things that he attributes to being miraculous. He, he felt like God understood him. Even more importantly, he felt that God had accepted him and received him. Not because he had gotten his life in order and fixed the things that were broken, but because he trusted that Jesus would come into his life just because he asked and would begin to do a work of transformation in his inmost being. Now, in the days that followed, Danny started to rely more on God to help him overcome his, his anger in prison. He, he relied on God to help him overcome his, his, his uh, addiction to alcohol and, and, and cocaine. And, and when another inmate tried to pick a fight with him, he was, he was actually surprised 
Because his old self of of standing up for himself and fighting back didn't show up. The the new self of feeling more called to, to make reconciliation with this man was the one that showed up. Probably most miraculous of all for Danny, as he recounts those years, is standing in prison one evening, looking out on the field that he was uh, meant to tend and had worked in over the years. And what he saw was, you know, plants growing, flowers coming up, vegetables growing. And, and, and he felt more free than he'd ever felt before. Ironically, he gets that sense when he's standing within the walls of Plymouth County Correctional Facility. See, Danny had a renewed outlook on the world. Danny had experienced this renewal, this new creation. Fast forward 10 years after his first incarceration, and Danny found himself entering back into Plymouth County Correctional Facility. And while he stood there in the lock, the guard says, who are you? Danny thinks, well, that's a pretty interesting question. Am I a murderer? Am I a drunk? Am I an addict? It's almost like this conversation is going on in Danny's head while the guard's waiting for him to answer. But then it, it sinks in. No, I'm, I'm not any of those. I'm forgiven. I'm a child of God. I'm not known for my past. In fact, as we read in Isaiah, we, don't even, we can't even remember that, right? I'm known for who I am in the new creation. Danny's response to the guard, by the way, is, no, um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm the new prison chaplain. See, Danny had returned to that place of incarceration because he wanted to tend to the garden. He wanted to be a gardener. See, his role as a follower of Jesus was not to, to just be present in church, but to be an influence on the culture, uh, surrounded by people who don't share his faith. But he wanted to bring Jesus into that place and let Jesus transform the culture of that prison. What's the point? No matter how hopeless we feel for this world, our God is still at work. He's redeeming this world, and he wants to work through you and I. Once Danny walked out of the prison the first time, he he could have moved on and never looked back, but instead he took seriously his calling to care for and to cultivate God's creation and to introduce other prisoners to the life transformation of Jesus. Church, we don't despair when our world and our culture feels hopeless. We don't despair. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 to 10, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are the jars of clay. We're those fragile jars, but we have a treasure inside of us, the life of the God of all creation through Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. When you get out into the culture, when you get your hands dirty, you will be afflicted, you will be perplexed, you will be persecuted, you will be struck down. But in all of that, there will be a great harvest so that on that day of judgment, when Jesus returns, there will be so many more who enter into this new quality of life where there's no more sickness, sadness, mourning, there's no more death, there's no more tears. So church, let's get out into our world. Let's get out into our world and let the life of Jesus make a lasting change on our culture. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that, uh, Lord, that, that we're reminded of the purpose you've given us. You've always given us. 
expand our view of this world to understand that our, our role of making disciples is not just to lead someone to repentance and, and faith in Jesus, but to, but to invest our time and our energy and our resources into changing the world around us. Lord, I, I pray that this church would not become a, 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 a bubble unto itself, that we would not see our lives as being one where we gather here, celebrate you, and feel that that is enough. Lord, I pray you would convict our hearts to get out there and to be a cultural influence, not just through church programs, but through getting out there in cultural programs, like influencing the life and the, 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 the culture in a prison or whatever it might be. Give us wisdom and clarity where you are calling us to get our hands dirty for the glory of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a verse from that passage. We're going to sing the exact words straight out of the Bible. And if you are a believer and you need marching orders, let this be the verse that you take with you to the garden. Right? Let this be the message that goes with you as you go out. If you are here watching at home, and you are not someone who can take this message out, then know that this is the message that's coming to you. Death shall be no more. 
That will be a beautiful day. I know many of us struggle with that idea of death now. Physical, emotional, spiritual death. And what a great promise it is that death will be no more. And we stand in the hands of the God who gives us life. Hey, I uh, just want to let you know a couple of things before we close uh, our time of worship this morning. Uh, next Sunday, uh, I'm, I'm excited for this. Next Sunday, we're going to be welcoming um, a, a Spanish-speaking fellowship, a, a Spanish church into our building to fellowship with us, to begin to build a relationship with Christiana Iglesia Sabaoth, um, led by Pastor Moses Garcia. Great man. I've been spending a lot of time with him lately and really just enjoyed that uh, tremendously. They'll be worshiping in the building at 12.30 on Sunday uh, afternoon, and, and they'll do that regularly. But it's our hope that we would take these next six months and build a relationship with uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that we might do so um, intentionally and prayerfully saying, God, what is this relationship you're inviting us into? So I, I want to ask you guys to be praying for that. Pray that God would lead us and guide us. The elders met with Pastor Moses, and um, Pastor Moses is friends with uh, Rudy and Eunice Polanco, and so we're, uh, we're excited to kind of get to know them through them. Uh, but I hope that we will be uh, kind of a welcoming and generous people to them when they come through the doors, that we will make them feel uh, that this is a, a home for them, the, the place to gather to worship the Lord. Uh, we may get a chance to see them in passing. Maybe they'll join us for worship some Sunday. You're welcome to join them for their, their time of worship. Uh, at 1230. Uh, but if you do see them, introduce yourself to them. Don't, don't wait for them to introduce themselves to you, but go up and introduce them to them. The, uh, there's many of them that do speak primarily Spanish, but, um, the, but they do understand some English as well. And um, so, uh, you know, there's, I'm sure Rudy and I can, uh, more so Rudy can help me uh, think through doing this in a loving, gracious way. But, but, but I'm excited, and I hope you'll be praying for this opportunity. One way that you can be praying, or actually two ways you could be praying for us, is join us for prayer. On Sunday mornings, there's a group of people who are gathering together to pray corporately for this church, pray through the scriptures, and, and really to, to pray for God to continue to lead us and guide us. They meet Sunday mornings at 8.30, and then Wednesday morning, there continues to be a group that comes together to pray for the concerns of our community to pray for the, the things that are in your heart and mind, lift them before the Lord. So uh, if you'd like to join them, that's on Wednesday mornings at 6.30. And you know what? That's a great place, again, to, to come together to pray for God to move among us, to work through us, and to transform the culture around us. So I hope you will uh, take advantage of those two opportunities to gather for prayer. And then lastly, uh, you know, we were talking about culture. We're wrapping this up. It is our purpose here in Fairfield to see the love of Jesus overwhelm and transform the families of our community. That's going to happen as we pray for that toward that end uh, together as a, as a faith community. But also, we, wanna, we, we, we pray that you would consider how God is putting on your heart to give joyfully, to give cheerfully toward that end, to support that purpose that we're, that we're pursuing. So you can give to that ministry, the, the ministry of the gospel here at Trinity in any, way of, any one of four ways. You can go on our website and give there. You can give through the app. You could text to give, or you could uh, mail a check to the church office and know that it goes toward that purpose of seeing the love of Jesus overwhelm and transform the families of our community. No matter what culture they come from, we care about shaping a kingdom culture here at Trinity and the surrounding area. So uh, thank you for, for considering that. Now receive the benediction as we close our time. In fact, stand as we, as, as we receive the benediction. Church, keep in mind that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Go in peace.